This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. Hey you with the face, do me a quick favor and subscribe wherever you found me, if you haven't already. And if you make it through this disaster and decide you want to come back for another last meal, tell a friend about it. Word of mouth is the best way to spread the love and executions. Join me live on Rumble on Thursday nights or sometimes Friday nights, it really depends. I talk recent crime news, dumb shit going on in Utah, and tell dick jokes. Someone's always talking about their dick on stream, and sometimes that someone is me. Come hang out sometime. Much love to all of you. The Big Apple is a place that it may surprise you to learn I've actually been to. Back in 2010, Rammstein, who are the greatest band to ever exist, came to New York to play their first show on U.S. soil in 10 years. I was lucky enough to have a mom willing to dump three grand into a trip so we could go to that show. Fucking amazing. But in addition to live pyrotechnics and sexy German dudes, I got to experience the hustle and bustle of New York for five days. It's exactly what you see on TV. It's crowded, loud, smells fucking terrible, full of crackheads and other street people trying to get you to buy their CDs for way too much money. It's an urban hellscape, probably less then than it is now. The one thing that was a real culture shock for my Utah-raised self was that I got served alcohol in a restaurant. I was 16. Dude said to me, you look old enough. What a hell of a fucking place. As far as capital punishment goes, Holy shit, I opened a can of worms with this one. New York is a notoriously blue state. That doesn't really need to be said. They abolished the death penalty in 2007, despite being one of those states that definitely needs it. Their very first execution was that of a slave named Jan Crioli all the way back in June of 1646. He was convicted of sodomy, buggery, and bestiality, and his method of execution was strangulation and burning. Hell of a way to go, especially when your only crime was diddling an animal. Jan Quistout von der Linde was the second New Yorker put to death, 14 years later, for the same crime, and he was drowned. To be very clear, New York has more executions than any state I've seen so far. For being a democratic shithole now, they really loved their death penalty until the 60s. Through the 1700s, many slaves and other people met their end by some odd means, burning, hanging in chains, and there was one poor soul who was broken on a wheel. That is exactly what it sounds like, tying a person to a wheel and breaking their limbs. Toward the end of the 1700s, there was a weird string of forgeries that landed a handful of different people a date with the rope. Starting in 1890, electrocution became the only method of execution in New York, and it stayed that way until the very end. Gotta be honest with you guys, I was not expecting New York to have this many executions. But it kind of makes sense. Slavery in colonial times, then mobsters in the 1900s. Just kind of shocking that a state this blue would have more executions than any red southern state I've covered so far. So grab a crack pipe and a pizza cutter. We're heading up to the Empire State.
desertion is a crime that, well, technically my dad is guilty of. He went AWOL when he was in the Marine Corps and did some time for it. Got a dishonorable discharge. Must not have done a ton of time, because he was always around when I was a kid. It's a far cry from what desertion got you back in 1814. If you know anything about American history, you'll know that we fought the British for a very long time to acquire and keep our independence. We fought them for a lot of things. Taxes, land, freedom. You'd think they would have learned not to fuck around with a bunch of 20-year-old men with muskets after the first time, but they didn't. <laughs> the War of 1812 was fought over maritime rights and national honor. Britain was seizing neutral ships and taking the cargo, and we didn't like that. The War of 1812 is sometimes referred to as the Second War of Independence, as we stood up to the British yet again. We were happy to trade with the Brits. They bought nearly 80% of our cotton and 50% of everything else. It was a great business deal, until Britain got scared that they wouldn't be the kings of the Atlantic Ocean anymore. Typical British bullshit. Gotta colonize everything and be number one. Many treaties were signed between the U.S. and other countries during this era, including the Jay Treaty, which included a rule that stated that a neutral nation could not conduct trade with an enemy if hostilities had started before the trade was agreed upon. Despite Britain and France beginning a war in 1793, a U.S. merchant had continued to do business with both countries. Eventually, the U.S. brought their case to court, stating that the rule of 1756 violated their right to trade with others. To get around this rule, American ships would stop at a neutral port on the way to the French West Indies, unload and reload their cargo, and then continue on. Because somehow, that makes everything legal. What a joke. On June 1st, 1812, then-President James Madison relayed a message to Congress about America's issues with Great Britain. He didn't call for a declaration of war, but the House of Representatives decided after four days that war was the way to go. On June 18, 1812, Madison signed the measure into law. This declaration of war was the very first one signed by the U.S. Anti-war Federalists would be arrested just days after war were declared for printing anti-war propaganda in a newspaper. These arrests led to over a month of riots and violence in Baltimore. Huh. Sound familiar? This war was fought all over North America, even up into the Canadian territories. I'm gonna focus on a specific point from here forward because this war was long and spanned across a vast landscape. In 1814, the Americans invaded the Niagara frontier a second time. We really wanted Canada for some reason. Honestly, if we tried, we could probably take it now. What are they going to fight back with? Maple syrup and bags of milk? Love you, Sean. I know you ain't listening, but I thought of you anyway. To get into a position of power, the Americans decided to secure Upper Canada, whatever the hell that is. Fort Erie was captured on July 3rd, 1814. A little more than a month later, the British tried to seize it and lost 950 men in the process. Eventually, supplies began to run out, and the Americans left Fort Erie after destroying it. Tensions were obviously high during this time, but I wanted to give you a little bit of history because during the Niagara Campaign, five men decided to jump ship and leave their post. 
Patriotism is often seen as a negative thing in today's time, but this was back in an era where any man would die for their country with a smile on their face. Having pride in one's country was not seen as racist, it was seen as honorable as it should be. These five men would be executed for desertion. George Orcote, John Black, Isaac Kent, and Mollen Christie were executed by gunshot on June 4th, 1814. If you didn't catch that, I only said four names. Each man was assigned a firing squad of about 12 men. Their guns were loaded by officers, and they were told not to check them after they fired. After the chaplain said a prayer, the white caps on the heads of the condemned were pulled down over their eyes. Ready, aim, fire was shouted. The shots rang out, and all five men hit the ground. Only four of them were dead. One lucky, unnamed bastard walked away without any wounds as his executioners hadn't been given any ammunition, just powder. I don't have any information on the last meals or last words of these condemned men, but I do have something different for you with this one. The first words of the man who had been spared after he realized he hadn't been hit. By God, I thought I was dead. I say this in almost every episode, but women really aren't treated the same in the legal system. They never really have been. The only real difference between the 1700s and now is that we'd hang women for being witches back then, and we let those who murder their children soak up tax dollars until they die of natural causes now. Battered woman syndrome is a defense that many try to use, some have a reason to, and some are just lying bitches. This next one, I'll let you decide. Roxalana Teft married her husband, William Druce, in 1864. The man had been so overwhelmed by her beauty that it drove him crazy. Together they had a daughter named Mary and a son named George. William's nephew Frank also lived with them in the town of Warren. The family had a bit of a reputation. William had a temper and was often judged for swearing and working on Sundays. This isn't Utah, what the fuck? <laughs> Neighbors were also aware that William beat his wife regularly, one time going so far as to beat her with a horsewhip and covering it up by paying a neighbor $5 to keep their mouth shut. Young Mary remembered two incidents in which her father beat her mother with branches from their apple tree. On another occasion, William strangled Roxalana and threatened to kill her with a pitchfork. A fucking prize, I can see. She was later quoted as saying that William was only a decent man on their wedding day, and that her advice was to never get married. I think it is a poor plan. It is a dreadful step to take, and it ought to have more consideration than people give it. My ex never hit me with branches, but uh, she's right, you know. Even if they aren't abusive, love dies and they'll run off with a stripper. William Druce went missing on December 18, 1884. Roxalana told the police that she'd been arguing with him that morning. Mary had tied a rope around his neck at the breakfast table and watched as Roxalana shot him. The older woman also threatened young Frank that if he didn't shoot his uncle, she'd kill him too. After the shooting, she realized that William was still alive. 
this prompted her to grab an axe and swing it at his head. This still wasn't enough to convince her that William had died, so she swung the axe again, bringing it down with enough force to chop his head off entirely. After this, Roxalana got her daughter Mary to help her dismember the body. The various pieces of William were placed into the oven to burn. His head was placed into a bag of wheat, and all the weapons were thrown into a nearby pond. Three men can keep a secret, if two of them are dead. Roxalana made the mistake of leaving William's nephew Frank alive. He had not only witnessed the murder, but participated in it. He later told the police about that terrible night, and Roxalana was arrested. The evidence against her was overwhelming. Frank's testimony, the bag with William's head, and the charred bones in the oven... She had no chance. This was back in a time when domestic violence was kinda... How do I put this? Tolerated? A woman killing her abusive spouse was still seen as murder, even if the man had put her through hell. Roxalana was found guilty and sentenced to hang on October 6th, 1885. The trial sparked some outrage among first-wave feminists in America, who protested that she was the victim in all this. Women couldn't vote, own property, or really do anything back in this time. Roxalana was convicted by an all-male jury. That only added to the outrage. Roxalana Druce was executed by hanging on February 28, 1887. She was the last woman to hang in the state of New York, and her execution was severely botched. At the time, New York was conducting executions with something called an upright jerker, which is not nearly as hilarious as it sounds. Rather than build a gallows with a trap door, a counterweight was dropped which would hoist the condemned into the air and hopefully break their neck. Roxalana's neck didn't break. She slowly suffocated to death with a rope around her neck. Shortly before her execution, officials had started looking for a more humane and practical way to execute people. Roxalana had no last words, just cries and shrieks. Due to the time period, I can't find anything on her last meal. The early 1900s was an era filled with fear and violence. Two major wars really fucked things up for Americans. I don't think that needs to be said. This time period bred some seriously fucked up people. Carl Panzram, Belt Gunnis, Ed Gein. I thought about covering a New York serial killer we all know and despise by the name of Albert Fish, but he's been done to death, pun definitely intended so I found one that I'm sure none of you have ever heard of. Frederick Wood was born into a middle-class family in Elmira in 1911. His early life is basically a mystery up until he started committing petty crimes as a teenager. Much like me and my teenage shenanigans, Wood avoided getting in trouble for most of his crimes. The first murder he claimed responsibility for... really has me fucked up, to be honest. In 1926, at the ripe old age of 14, he poisoned his 16-year-old girlfriend, Cynthia Longo. Why? Because he suspected that she was dating someone else. This was apparently enough of a reason to lace some cream puffs with arsenic and hand them out to Cynthia and two other friends. Of the three, Cynthia was the only one to perish. 
The coroner listed her cause of death as dilation of the heart caused by excessive vomiting. They also listed her age as 22 years old, but that obviously wasn't accurate. This reminds me of a recent Sword and Scale that I just listened to again. The one about Marin Sanchez, who was stabbed to death at her school because she rejected some kid when he asked her to prom. Some people are just so entitled and full of themselves. Makes me fucking sick. Wood made it through his first year of high school before deciding he didn't want to be there anymore. His father was pissed and sent him off to the Binghamton State Hospital to be examined. Wood spent about two months there and was determined to have an average IQ of about 99. He was discharged and wasn't out on the streets for long before being arrested for grand larceny. He was given a 10-year suspended sentence. Parents of this era didn't really know what the fuck they were doing, but I will give credit where it's due. Wood's father tried. He sent his son to a private school in Dobbs Ferry, but the young man only stayed there for a year and a half. As soon as he aged out of the school, he was released back into society and started causing chaos once again. The suspended sentence would come back to bite Wood in the ass when he was charged with robbing a man of 25 cents. He was sent to the Elmira Reformatory, where he stayed until he got parole in 1931. The very next year, Wood was sent back to prison for harassing women and public intoxication. They decided to ship him off to a state hospital for the criminally insane, but for whatever reason, didn't keep him there very long. He moved back to the prison and then paroled again in November of 1932. The state of New York would go on to regret their decision to release Wood back into the world in 1933. After getting out of prison, the young man started procuring the services of prostitutes. This eventually led to him contracting a disease. This is the 30s, after all. STDs were probably running rampant at this point, and there wasn't much anyone could do about them. Whatever Wood caught was enough to make him hate women. He started harassing any and all women he saw on the streets of Elmira. Then he encountered a 33-year-old woman named Pearl Robinson. Wood grabbed her and wrapped a rope around her neck, which he used to strangle her before stabbing her 142 times. This wasn't enough, though. After the final stab, Wood bludgeoned her in the head with an iron bar and crushed her skull. Think about that for a minute. This kind of overkill is usually only seen in cases of, like, severe betrayal. This was a random woman, and he absolutely obliterated her for no reason other than his dick hurt when he peed. Police dropped the ball on this one, assuming that Pearl knew her killer. Wood wasn't on their radar at all. A month after Pearl was killed, Wood was arrested for harassing a woman at a pharmacy. This crime landed him seven years in the slammer. Really? For harassment? Child molesters get less time than that now. What the actual fuck? Wood was released from prison in February of 1940 and went back to Elmira. He went a bit off script with his next crime. Under the assumption that his girlfriend was being harassed by a World War II veteran named John Lowman, Wood invited the man to a rooming house in the city for some drinks. 
John allegedly insulted Wood's girlfriend in his presence, so Wood smacked him in the head with a beer bottle and then stomped on him repeatedly after he fell to the floor. Wood then slashed John with a knife several times and stuffed his body under the couch. Here we go again with that overkill. Jesus. Wood spent five days in the county jail because of this murder. Oh, no, I don't mean he was charged with John's death. He had told his father about it, gotten into an argument with him, and then landed a disorderly conduct charge. Eventually, his girlfriend found the body, and he was also charged with murder. He got a sentence of 20 to life. Wood tried to commit suicide the day before he was sentenced, but was unsuccessful. The judge in his case remarked that, for the protection of society, he should never be released from prison. But this is New York, so, you know. Wood spent some time in prison before being transferred to another hospital for the criminally insane. He was transferred back to prison in 1950 and paroled in 1960. Despite the comments from the judge and the public outcry, Wood was released on June 2nd, 1960 after serving just 17 years of his sentence. The parole board really fucked this one up. One of the conditions of his parole was that Wood was required to live in Albany. He tried to get his shit together, but health problems prevented him from keeping a job. On June 28th, he broke the terms of his parole and caught a bus to New York City. The aging man made a living by panhandling on Broadway. During this time, he met and befriended a World War I vet named John Resigno. The pair drank a bottle of wine at Union Square Park, and John invited Wood over to his apartment for more drinks. Wood later claimed that John had made an indecent proposal to him, which led to an argument. The gay panic defense. Jesus Christ, I don't understand. When women hit on me, I just laugh at them and tell them they're not my type because they're not. Murder really isn't necessary. <laughs> Wood was livid though, and broke a beer bottle on John's head. He then used the broken bottle to cut his throat before grabbing a coal shovel and beating him to death with it. Once again, fucking overkill. Wood dug through John's pockets and took $7 from him before leaving the room to find more things to take. In the next room over, John's roommate lay sleeping in his bed. Frederick Sess, who was 78 at the time, woke up when Wood entered his room. He was then beaten to death with a broken bottle. Rather than just leave things as they were, Wood decided to make his way into the kitchen and write two notes which would be found later. One claimed that he was so sorry, while the other mocked the parole board for letting him out. John and Frederick's apartment wasn't the last place Wood went for the night. He made his way to Cronin's Bar and Grill, where he explained away the blood on his hands as being the result of a fight he'd gotten into. The murderous psychopath spent the next few days stalking women and looking for more victims. During this time, the news director for a local radio station put together that the double murder of Frederick and John seemed very similar to that of John Lohman decades earlier. He contacted the police, and they decided to interview Wood, who had been arrested for violating the terms of his parole. To everyone's surprise, Wood confessed immediately to what he'd done. All of what he'd done, including the murders of Cynthia Longo and Pearl Robinson. This confession sent shockwaves through the state of New York and brought great embarrassment to the parole board. 
The chairman at the time had to issue a statement in which he declared the decision to parole Wood was a mistake. That's the fucking understatement of the century. I will never understand parole boards. Early release should be for non-violent offenders who actually try to better themselves. We've come a long way as a society, but this is one of those things that will probably never change. Wood went to trial just a few months after he was arrested. He did the dumbest thing you can do at a criminal trial and took the stand in his own defense, if you could call it that. I think he took the stand to show the court just how arrogant and fucked up he actually was. He declared that he was completely sane and in his right mind when he committed the murders, and that he'd loved how it felt to kill people. Throughout the trial, he cracked jokes and made light of literally everything, which I guess I can't really knock him for, because that's exactly what I do in this podcast. But still, when asked about his employment, Wood told the court that he was a wine sampler. The jury in his case deliberated for just over an hour before finding him guilty on all counts. On December 8, 1961, the judge handed down a death sentence. Wood thanked the judge for prescribing him the shock treatment for his schizophrenia. A truly fucking demented man, but holding true to his character until the very end. Frederick Charles Wood was executed by electrocution on March 21, 1963. He'd managed to get his execution stayed three times before the state finally put him down. Maybe it had something to do with how fucking nuts he was? That's what his attorneys ran with, anyway, but he fought them on it and welcomed death when it finally came. He stated that he wanted to ride the lightning without further delay. As he sat waiting to be hooked up to the chair, he smiled and smoked a cigarette. Wood's last words were, Gents, this is an educational project. You are about to witness the damaging effect electricity has on wood. Enjoy yourselves. For some weird reason, I can't find anything on his last meal. This was the 60s. What the fuck? They actually documented this kind of stuff by then. I briefly mentioned earlier that a lot of the executions in modern times in New York were those of mobsters and other members of society's underbelly, those trying to prove their worth in the dark underground of the 1940s, hitmen mostly. Many famous cases of mafia members being executed took place in the Big Apple, but there are just as many that I'm sure you've never heard of. Elmer Burke was born in 1917 and was brought up by his older brother Charlie. Kind of a common situation in this time period. Dad goes off to fight in the war, mom has too many fucking kids to handle by herself, older siblings take on the role of parents because no one else is gonna do it. In this case though, both of their parents had died. Burke was sent to reform school in 1941 because he was a troublemaker. His sentence was cut down after he agreed to join the army. After this, he did two years in Sing Sing prison for robbery. While he was locked up, his brother Charlie was murdered by a man named George Gall. In retaliation, Burke shot Gall in Manhattan sometime after he got out. I might just have a skewed vision of reality, but I actually side with Burke on this one. An eye for an eye. 
Like any good mobster, Burke would force the local businesses to pay him for protection. He'd later earn the nickname Trigger because of his tendency to shoot people behind the ear. On July 12, 1952, Burke entered a local bar and tried to shake down the bartender for protection money. I don't know why, but this guy is giving me Patty McGuire vibes really bad. Go watch the UK version of Shameless if you haven't already. That shit is gold. Inside the bar at the time of the holdup were Edward Poochie Walsh and his friend Squeaky. How did these people take themselves seriously? <laughs> I can't. I, I just can't. Burke ended up shooting Poochie because the man tried to prevent him from harassing the bartender. The same bartender had already paid Poochie for protection, so obvious conflict there. Poochie had broken up a fight between Burke and the bartender earlier that day as well. Burke had left, but came back with a 45 and shot Poochie in the face with it. To add to this already complicated mess, Burke was dating Poochie's sister at the time of the shooting. Before we get to the last meal and all that other fun stuff, I'm going to tell you a story about a major heist that took place in 1950. The Great Brinks robbery landed the culprits a grand total of almost $3 million. At the time, it was the largest robbery in US history, and has been called the crime of the century. It went unsolved for almost six years before a man came forward with knowledge of the crime. The statute of limitations was just days away from running out when the man testified. Elmer Burke was a key player in this robbery. He was hired by those who actually committed the robbery to kill Joseph O'Keefe, who the Mafia feared would crack under pressure from the police. Burke thought he killed Joseph, but it only hit him in the leg after firing dozens of rounds at him. Thanks to his testimony, eight of the men involved in the robbery were put away for life. It was also thanks to Joseph O'Keefe that Burke would be hunted down for attempted murder. Police found and arrested him in Boston. He escaped and managed to stay on the run for a year before he was picked up in South Carolina. He was tried and convicted of the murder of Edward Pucci Walsh and sentenced to death. Elmer Trigger Burke was executed by electrocution on January 9, 1958. He had a lengthy rap sheet and was suspected of many murders for hire over the years. He'd somehow avoided charges for these. It wasn't until he fucked up and shot Joseph O'Keefe in the leg that he finally went down. Had it not been the cops, though, it would have been his employers. He'd gotten sloppy and eventually would have had to pay with his life one way or another. At least this way we get a last meal. When Burke was asked if he had any last words, he said, Yeah, sit on my lap. His last meal was a steak and six cigars, keeping it classy till the very end. Pretty sure I mentioned a few episodes ago about how the Midwest is full of Polish people. It leaves me wondering, what the fuck is so great about Michigan? Maybe Detroit wasn't always a shithole, but still, I don't see the appeal. Then again, I don't know much about Poland, so maybe it's a step up? 
Pavel Cholgosh and Maria Novak came to the U.S. for a better life. They resided in Michigan in the late 1800s and had a total of eight children, including a son named Leon. Shortly after their final child was born, Maria passed away and left her husband with eight hungry mouths to feed. He somehow managed to pull it off, though, and supported his family until his children were old enough to work. At the age of 16, Leon found work at a glass factory in Pennsylvania. A year later, the family moved to Ohio, and Leon started working at a steel mill. Though his later years would see him spiral out of control, I have to give him some credit. He did what he could to help his family. There was an economic crash in 1893 which caused the Cleveland Rolling Mill Company to shut down temporarily and try to cut the workers' wages. This caused the employees to strike. Leon leaned into the Catholic Church and other immigrant institutions for support during this trying time. This eventually led to him joining a socialist club known as the Knights of the Golden Eagle. Just gonna cut in here and say, if y'all have Dutch bros in your state, the Golden Eagle is like their best fucking drink. God damn it, now I need to go get one. After dipping his toe in socialism, he dove headfirst into a more radical group called the Sela Club. This developed into an interest in anarchism. Pavel bought a farm in Warrensville, Ohio in 1897, and his son Leon came to live with him a year later, following many more workplace strikes and a battle with a respiratory illness. Leon became a recluse living on the farm and fell deeper and deeper down the anarchism rabbit hole. I hate the fucking government too, but I just don't have the time or energy to fuck everything up. I have a family to feed, you know? Leon met a woman named Emma Goldman after she gave a lecture in Cleveland in 1901. He asked her if she had any reading recommendations for him. Leon would have a few encounters with her over the next few months and grow closer to her. He expressed his disappointment in the local socialists, which led to Emma introducing him to her more radical friends. His descent into madness apparently looked suspicious to other anarchists. The Free Society newspaper issued a warning on September 1st, which essentially accused Leon of being a spy. All because he was awkward as fuck and asked too many questions. The socialists were wrong though, as they always are. Fight me. Leon made his way to Buffalo, New York on August 31st, 1901, with a goal in mind that would rattle the nation. He rented a room in a local hotel and stayed there for a week before he put his plan into action. On September 6th, Leon attended the Pan American Exposition armed with a 32 caliber revolver. Then-President William McKinley was doing a short meet-and-greet with the public after a speech. He reached out to shake Leon's hand, but was met with two gunshots to the abdomen. These gunshots were not fatal, but McKinley later died of an infection that had spread from his wounds. Right after the shooting, a member of the crowd hit Leon in the neck and knocked the gun out of his hand. Other people soon started beating the assassin, and McKinley told them to go easy on him. Leon was beaten until he was arrested, and the cops had a hell of a time keeping the angry mob away from him. Leon spoke openly with the prison guards about what had happened, but refused to have anything to do with his defense attorneys or the psychiatrists sent to examine him. Leon wanted to plead guilty, but for whatever reason, probably to ensure a death sentence now that I think about it, the judge entered a not guilty plea on his behalf. 
Many witnesses were called on the state's behalf. So many people had watched Leon shoot the president. The defense didn't call any witnesses and didn't really present a case at all, later citing Leon's refusal to cooperate with them. Leon Cholgosh was executed by electrocution on October 29, 1901. Through the very end, he stood by his beliefs and refused the assistance of two clergymen who came to see him through his final moments. He didn't want to repent. He stood by what he'd done. Even when his brother Valdek came to visit him and asked if he wanted the priests to come back, Leon said, No, damn them. Don't send them here again. I don't want them. Don't you have any praying over me when I'm dead? I don't want it. I don't want any of their damned religion. One thing I do know about Polish is they fucking love their Catholicism, so this is pretty crazy to me. Leon's last words were, I shot the president because I thought it would help the working people and for the sake of the common people. I am not sorry for my crime. I am awfully sorry because I could not see my father. He declined a last meal. Our final execution for this episode is also the final execution in New York State. I thought really hard about putting this one in The Last to Die, but decided against it because this crime really encompasses the vibe of New York. Very Baltimore-esque. This crime took place long past the era of mobsters and immigrants coming to the states through Ellis Island. It's a lot more similar to something we'd see in today's New York, and it has a loose tie to next week's episode. The youngest of five children, Eddie Mays was born in Walstenburg, North Carolina in 1929. When Mays was just six months old, his father ran off to Baltimore, of course, and abandoned the family. Eventually, the man would end up in prison for murder. Mays and his siblings were raised by a single mother, which is never a great situation, but in this era and with that many kids... Fuck, dude. I see why he spiraled out of control. Mays left school at the age of 14 and did odd jobs to try to help his mother. Eventually, he followed in his father's footsteps and ended up in jail in Baltimore for larceny and also for slashing his girlfriend with a razor. These crimes got him six months in jail. After Mays got out, he went back to North Carolina, but didn't stay long before going back to Baltimore. Surprisingly enough, note that sarcasm right there, Mays was arrested just a month after returning to Maryland and extradited back to North Carolina to face charges for killing a man. He pled guilty to manslaughter and served, wait for it, seven years before being released in 1958. He made his way to New York City and continued his violent behavior. Mays was convicted of felonious assault after slashing a man during an argument and given a three-year suspended sentence. His probation ended in January of 1961. The East Coast uh, never learns, do they? Just two months after his suspended sentence ended, Mays and two other men decided to rob the Friendly Tavern in East Harlem. These men were David Johnson and Jose Sanchez Fernandez. Mays ordered everyone inside to put their cash on the bar. 
Everyone did as they were told, but 31-year-old Maria Marini was too slow for Mays, and he became angry. He snatched her purse and opened it, but it was totally empty. This pissed him off even more. He put a 38 caliber revolver against Maria's forehead and pulled the trigger. The group made off with a grand total of $275. That's how much this woman's life was worth to Mays and his accomplices. Again, very Baltimore-esque. Mays was arrested not long after the murder and was offered a fucking plea deal, because we all know how well those work. The death penalty would be taken off the table if Mays pled guilty to second-degree murder. He refused, proclaiming that he would rather be executed. During his trial, it came out that he was part of a gang that had committed a total of 52 robberies in a six-week period. That's an average of more than one per day. The jury deliberated for just 90 minutes before finding him guilty. Another 20 minutes of deliberations led them to the decision that he should not be shown any mercy. He was sentenced to death. David Johnson was found guilty and received a life sentence. He was paroled in 1976. Jose Sanchez Fernandez was also found guilty and given a life sentence. He was paroled in 1977 and died of brain cancer just a year later. Eddie Lee Mays was executed by electrocution on August 15, 1963. He was the last person to be put down by the state of New York before the death penalty was abolished. However, and this one got me, capital punishment is still an option for those convicted of murdering a police officer in New York. That's some serious East Coast logic right there. Delaware wants that too. Mays didn't offer any last words. He also declined a last meal, instead opting for a pack of cigarettes and a box of matches. This request was granted. Kind of. The guards had to light his cigarettes for him. Before we go, as I often do, I'm gonna leave you with a more recent case. The Buffalo Shooter has been in the news a lot lately. I've talked about him in the live streams because he's up for the death penalty. Hate crimes are federal territory, so he's eligible to be executed. But I've talked about him enough. I'm gonna bring you a case that's exactly like almost every other case in New York in the past few years. I can think of several just like this one off the top of my head. On February 23rd, 2024, yep, that fucking recent, a 45-year-old man riding the D train in the Bronx was attacked by three people. What had started the argument is pretty unclear. One of the three people who got on the train at the Fordham Road stop sat next to William Alvarez and began to argue with him. This quickly turned physical, and the other two people joined in, making it three against one. As soon as the train hit the next stop, the three suspects ran off. When police arrived, they found William with what they thought was either a gunshot or a stab wound to the chest. He was taken to St. Barnabas Hospital, where he was pronounced dead just before 6 a.m. The three suspects were later identified as 24-year-old Justin Hurd, 38-year-old Betty Cotto, and 42-year-old Alfred Trinidad. Their relationship to each other is unknown, but something tells me it's drug-related. 
It also appears that they didn't have any prior connection to William. As of the time of writing, literally four days after this attack, none of the suspects are listed in the New York Department of Corrections system. What the fuck? Well, that's gonna do it for the pollution and crack state. Definitely one of the weirder ones. This one had a little bit of everything, except a three-drug cocktail. If you enjoyed this episode, record a review on some CDs and convince random street people to buy it from you for $10. I know that sounds like a joke, but that actually happened while I was in New York. Random-ass, crackhead-looking motherfucker trying to sell us his album. Hell of a place. I'm available on Rumble and Odyssey, as well as most podcast apps. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter, at LastMealPod. Join me and my favorite Canadian on probably Thursday nights, maybe Fridays, live on Rumble to talk recent crime news and make jokes about my shitty life. I'll be back next week with a red state full of fucked up shit and people getting the needle. Thank God. That one should be a little easier to research. Cursed is the man who dies but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.